Hi everyone, this is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to tell our listeners about a new book. It's just out from my colleague here at the Manhattan Institute, Howard Husock. It's called Who Killed Civil Society? The Rise of Big Government and Decline of Bourgeois Norms. It's an important book about the decline of key institutions of civil society, institutions like the YMCA, the Boy and Girl Scouts, the Rotary Clubs, and why government-run programs designed to replace such private efforts have, in Husak's view, generally failed. The role of civic groups in America and in American life has been a major focus at the Manhattan Institute and at City Journal for years. In fact, on October 16th, we're hosting the annual Civil Society Awards in New York City, where we'll honor four outstanding nonprofit groups for their efforts in helping to solve the country's most pressing challenges. If you're interested in that, you can visit the Manhattan Institute website to learn more. But again, the book by Howard Husak is called Who Killed Civil Society? It's on sale today, and I hope you'll check it out. We'll link to it in the show description, and you can find it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. That's it for the announcement. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to the 10 Blocks podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today from his home in Seattle is Christopher Rufo. Chris is a documentary filmmaker and a City Journal contributing editor. He's been writing a lot for us over the last year, and we're very happy to have him back on the podcast. He had a couple of short pieces in our summer issue, one of which was just adapted by the Wall Street Journal with the title, New Left Urbanists Want to Remake Your City. We'll talk about that piece, which is on the new politics of cities, homelessness, and more with Chris Rufo after the break. Hello again, everyone. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Chris Rufo. Chris is a documentary filmmaker based in Seattle and a City Journal contributing editor. You can follow him on Twitter at RealChrisRufo. Chris, thanks so much for being on the show again. Great to be with you. Yeah, so let's start with the, uh, the recent piece you've written for us and that was adapted in the Wall Street Journal on the new left urbanists. Who are they? Sure. The new left urbanists are this really new faction of kind of progressive political power in America's biggest cities. And it's something that I've been observing over the last year and really trying to figure out how it's taking shape. But basically, these are folks who are using kind of old school bread and butter city political issues like infrastructure, transportation, housing, bike lanes. Um, but they're taking it and they're radicalizing it. They have a vision of really taking over the urban, urban space and transforming it according to their uh, desires and, and perceived needs. And it's not really about infrastructure. That's the thing I learned after observing uh, these folks, reading their reports, looking at some of the rhetoric. It's actually this kind of hyper-progressive activism uh, that they see really social justice, racial justice, economic justice, all of these huge things they think they can achieve uh, by modifying and essentially taking over uh, the public infrastructure of American cities. One area of activism 
you, you discuss, uh, and it would fall under, to some degree, infrastructure, is transportation policy. So, you know, we've supported at City Journal some form of congestion pricing in Manhattan to ease what is a very serious traffic clog, especially in Midtown, uh, and recognize, as, as most people do, the need to have a kind of robust, uh, funded public transportation system. Where do the new left urbanists, in your view, go beyond these kind of positions? That's a great question. You know, when you look at the history of the New York subway system, I think that what you saw maybe 100 years ago um, at the turn of the century was really a modernist vision. People were trying to figure out how can we use uh, the subway system to get people where they need to go in a way that's efficient, in a way that uh, is effective, and in a way that um, really can show, showcase kind of the best in public transportation. It was, it was almost kind of an engineering mindset. But what you see now is that the subway for these new left urbanists has transformed from really a practical, functional infrastructure um, to something that is more uh, cosmic in scale. If you look at some of the reports that they're writing about the subway, they look at it uh, not as a tool of transportation, but a tool of racial, economic, immigrant, and uh, income justice. And it's kind of been adapted into this social justice framework and set out to not only solve the problem of how do you get New Yorkers to where they need to go, but really how can you fundamentally reshape society um, and, and address these perceived systemic wrongs and evils. And I think that that's where kind of two people that are looking at this issue can depart. So while some, you know, including City Journal, have supported some form of congestion pricing as an efficient way to raise revenues, to modernize the subway, um, there's another case that I think goes much too far, and it's really trying to uh, eliminate the personal automobile and prioritize uh, the subway system. But there's really a wrinkle in a lot of these policies, and I've seen it both in the subway system and transportation in New York, and then the bicycle lane infrastructure here in Seattle, that um, activists who are uh, predominantly highly educated, affluent, white, um, are, are making this argument on something like racial justice or economic justice. But if you look at the public polling data, uh, the people who, and oftentimes they're claiming to represent, don't share those same opinions. So if you look at in New York, people in outer boroughs um, don't support congestion pricing by the largest margins. Um, and in Seattle, it's, it's the same thing. You look at the people who are utilizing the bike lane infrastructure, 77% of these folks are white men, um, and their most common professions are things like physician, graphic designer, and computer programmer. While at the same time, they're couching it in the terms of transportation equity, transportation justice. Um, you know, only 1% of African-American and Latino residents of Seattle use their bicycles as a form of transportation. So there's really a, a, a fascinating um, contradictions that are in this. And I think that we're seeing this play out not only in New York and Seattle municipal politics, but really has come to a head in something like the Green New Deal uh, that's being debated nationwide. One other area you discuss in this piece uh, is housing policy. And I think, um, you know, there's, there's widespread recognition that successful cities have uh, dysfunctional housing markets these days, uh, which has a cutoff opportunity for newcomers. There's not enough uh, variety and availability uh, of apartments and, and housing options. 
What's wrong with the new left urbanist approach in your view on housing? How does it differ from just recognizing that we need more? Yeah, I think that housing is obviously the, the million dollar question in all of the uh, biggest cities in the United States. Um, here in Seattle, where I live, in San Francisco, in LA, uh, in New York, in DC, um, people are feeling the pressure that as there's been this uh, kind of back to the city movement, one thing that's happened is that new construction hasn't kept up with demand um, and housing prices are going through the roof. And I think anyone that looks at that is sympathetic to the question uh, and the idea that we need to somehow reduce the cost of housing. But what the new left urbanists are proposing is in one of the plans from the People's Policy Project is not to facilitate new construction, to reduce regulations, to reduce the cost of construction, but to actually have the local governments uh, funded by the state and federal uh, dollars actually take over housing construction. They propose the construction of one million new, uh, what they're calling municipal homes, uh, what we might have used to call public housing projects. And it's gotten, it's gotten so um, aggressive that activists in cities like San Francisco have actually said that they oppose all new private housing construction and that the city government should be the kind of home builder and landlord of first, middle, and last resort. And I think what the problem is is that this ignores the entire uh, century-long history of public housing in the United States, um, which has created some of the kind of worst places to live in the country. And they have this, what, in, what I see as a, a, a fictional belief that somehow these new uh, municipal homes, after they've rebranded them, are going to look like the public housing pro projects in Vienna and Helsinki and Oslo, rather than the public housing projects in Chicago, Newark, and Oakland. And I think the, the real problem is that um, there isn't the political will to have these massive new construction projects. Um, and I think that the pragmatic approach, which is a kind of market urbanist orientation that could, could immediately reduce the cost of housing while creating high quality places to live, the new left urbanists are, are basically saying, we don't want anything to do with that. We only want this vision uh, where there's just absolute uh, government control of housing in America's cities. And I think that whether they win or lose, um, that's not going to actually solve the problem and at worst could lead to disaster. What do you think of their political chances in urban environments? How, uh, you know, this is primarily, I would say, an activist class rather than a governing class. Uh, are they having influence on public policy debates? Um, how, how are their views reflected in a place like Seattle these days? Yeah, the, in, in Seattle, they're, they're really seizing the high ground. And I've noticed something that's fascinating. Uh, the activist positions when pollsters are, act, are asking voters, um, do, you, do you support this, um, are overwhelmingly unpopular. So in the recent polling data, for example, 65% of Seattle voters opposed all new bike lane construction. Um, while at the same time, some of the bicycle activists have cultivated the most powerful people at the city council and in the mayor's office. Um, the Transportation Choices Coalition is an organization here in Seattle that, uh, despite their name of Transportation Choices, actually want to reduce choices and have really one transportation system uh, that's ideologically driven. Um, you know, they're placing people in the highest levels of the mayor's uh, administration. Um, so 
despite having what you would think of as broadly unpopular positions, um, despite being a very small minority, um, you know, bicycle commuting has never been more than 3% in the city of Seattle, no matter how many new bike lanes we construct. Um, they're an example of what uh, the economist Nassim Taleb calls the tyranny of the small minority. Um, they've actually been able to crowd out all of the, all of the kind of uh, loosely organized opposition. Uh, they've been able to really impose their will on public policy um, despite being largely unpopular. And we're, we're seeing this, this, this kind of interesting phenomenon where um, I'm wondering how long it will be able to continue um, before there is kind of large-scale neighborhood-based opposition um, that puts the brakes on some of the more extreme uh, programs that we're seeing. You're also starting to see some pushback from residents of otherwise very progressive cities when it comes to tolerating widespread uh, homeless encampments and, and street disorder. Uh, that's something you've also been writing about for us. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that if you, if you take predominantly you know, cities on the West Coast and then also cities like Denver, um, we've seen a, an absolutely astonishing shift in public opinion regarding uh, homeless encampments. Um, the best example is that uh, earlier this year, activists in Denver were trying to pass an initiative that would essentially legalize uh, homeless encampments in all public spaces, on, in parks, on sidewalks, in front of City Hall. Um, and this is something that has been considered in California, been considered in Washington State. Um, it kind of tracks with what we call survival crime legislation, uh, which basically posits that uh, people who are homeless have no other option but to uh, camp on the streets and commit low-level property crimes, and we should basically decriminalize that entire class of offenses. But in Denver, something happened that was very interesting. Uh, the local business community really rallied in opposition of this uh, public camping uh, ordinance. And uh, although activists raised $100,000 to in, in support of this initiative to legalize camping, businesses came together and raised a kind of a really astonishing $2.4 million to crush this initiative. And at the end of the day, when people in Denver went to vote, although they're a, a very progressive city uh, in terms of state and national politics, they rejected this so-called right to camp ban by 81% to 19%. So you had a, a huge margin of people saying, wait a minute, uh, we wanna provide compassionate care for people who are homeless, uh, but we don't want to adopt permissive policies that are just going to make the problem of street disorder worse. And you're seeing this play out in, in, in cities that are really longtime strongholds of the left. In San Diego, they're reinstituting a uh, car camping ban. Uh, the mayor has basically said that um, they've gone too far in permissiveness and they have to balance compassion for the homeless uh, with compassion for residents who have been affected by some of the rising uh, disorder and crime associated with homelessness. Um, even in San Francisco, uh, when, when the new mayor, London Breed, was elected, um, I, I, I took notice of a remarkable photo op that she did in the first days of her new administration. Uh, she had photographers follow her along as she carried a gigantic broom through the streets of San Francisco. 
trying to signal that it's time to clean up the streets. And uh, despite being the most progressive city in the country, they've really increased the tempo of, uh, of, of kind of disrupting and cleaning up encampments um, in response to this uh, overwhelming public pressure where you have committed, diehard uh, liberals and progressives uh, that are starting to recoil and say, uh, maybe we got this wrong. Maybe decriminalization is not the best path for the community. It's very interesting. It's sort of a limit point to progressivism, perhaps, uh, even in these otherwise very liberal cities. Uh, you, you've recently written about uh, a small city nearby Seattle um, and their relative success with dealing with the problem of homelessness. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I found, uh, having spent about 18 months uh, researching homelessness, addiction, and mental illness, is that um, you, you kind of come to the point where you, can, where you can feel like the problem is so endemic, it's so uh, huge that there's no hope left. And so what I've been trying to do is really try to spend some time focusing on success stories, uh, looking at other models from cities that have had some uh, impact in addressing the crisis. And one of the stories I found was a, a little city that borders Seattle just to the south called Burien, Washington. Uh, it's a working class city of about 50,000 people. It's 50% white, 50% non-white. Uh, it has a predominantly left-leaning mayor and city council. Um, but they've tried something in the last uh, six months that I think is uh, remarkable. And if they're able to continue with the success, could provide a model for other small and medium-sized cities. What happened is that the city manager of Burien, uh, under kind of really a lot of pressure from the business community that had been complaining about street homelessness, about the impact uh, that it's had on their businesses, um, he devised a really simple plan that I think falls under a philosophy that I'd call compassionate enforcement. He said basically what we're going to do is uh, try a four-month pilot program. Uh, we're going to first uh, secure enough emergency shelter space, both in Burien and through regional partnerships, uh, in order to comply with the Martin versus Boise Supreme Court decision that says to cities that if you want to uh, kind of clean up homeless encampments, you have to first have enough shelter space for people to go. So they did that. Then they spent about a month conducting outreach to all of the people on the streets of Burien. Uh, the police chief down there, Ted Bowe, told me uh, there was roughly 50 to 100 people uh, that were really chronically unsheltered homeless in the city. So they spent a lot of time, about a month, building relationships, learning about people, figuring out what their needs are, um, and, and trying to persuade them to enter services. And then they said, in a month from now, we're going to give 72-hour notice, and we're going to enforce a strict no-camping ban in our public parks. You'll have 72 hours to vacate, and if you don't vacate, and you continue to refuse, we're gonna arrest you. And that's all it took. It was a low cost, really simple program uh, that utilized existing resources to change the incentive structure and really start enforcing the law. And the, the effect that it had was remarkable. Um, the police chief told me that when they started doing outreach, the vast majority of the people voluntarily moved on. Six, six people accepted shelter. Um, and then when it came time for the 72-hour notice, there were only 27 people that were continuing to camp in the public parks. Um, after the notice, 26 of them voluntarily moved on. 
and one of them was arrested after repeatedly refusing to leave. And if you look at the numbers, it shows, I think, some really important, it reveals some really important conclusions. One is that the vast majority of people, uh, you know, more than 90 people chose to voluntarily move on after rejecting services. So these are the biggest part of this population, what you might call service-resistant individuals um, who, no matter what, are not going to accept services, but if you enforce the law, they'll voluntarily move on uh, and cease to create kind of this public disorder in parks. You had six people that were able to, that the city was able to encourage uh, to accept services. So that's six more people who didn't accept services previously that now have a chance to heal, uh, to get back on their feet, uh, and to kind of start on their pathway to a better life. And then you had one person who absolutely refused. And I think that cities should, should take away a lesson from this, that no matter what you do on the service side, if you don't have also a policy of compassion enforcement, you're going to have a very large population of service-resistant individuals uh, that, that only respond uh, when you offer both compassionate programs and compassionate enforcement. And if you leave out that enforcement piece, um, you're never going to be able to solve the homelessness crisis uh, that is plaguing so many cities. Another short piece you did for us recently was on your trip to Italy, uh, a small rural village uh, where you reported that there, in a kind of more philosophical vein, on some lessons you, you saw about dealing with uh, mental illness and addiction uh, that, that might also be something we could learn from. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, one of, the, one of the kind of, one of the talking points of the American left is that, uh, you know, countries in Europe are, are better and they're more civilized and they're, they're more humane because they have a, a very generous uh, public safety net. But um, I've been kind of uh, living in Italy off and on my entire life. Uh, my father's an immigrant from Italy. I'm a citizen of Italy as well as the United States. And uh, we come from a, a village of about 2,000 people that is, um, it's rural, uh, it's remote, um, it's very poor, even by Italian standards. Um, but what I've observed over the last 20 years is that um, community life, relationships, uh, and, and kind of people's mental and emotional well-being um, might be higher in a place like my village, San Donato, not because there's a generous safety net, but because the cultural institutions, uh, the family, uh, uh, the extended family, the community, kind of the, the, the municipal connections that shape this society um, are very strong. And they provide... Um, not the public safety net that a lot of people like to talk about, but really a private, civic, familial, and community safety net that I think is even more important. And what I saw this summer that I've, and I've seen for a long time, but after studying addiction and mental illness in the United States for about a year and then observing it in my town is that um, in, in this town, it, it has a really high rate of people who are addicted to alcohol predominantly, and then some who are addicted to uh, heroin uh, and other drugs, um, and also a high rate of people who are mentally ill. And, uh, but, but what I saw really, uh, really, really, really touched me, really, really impacted me. I saw that 
despite alcohol addiction, despite even opioid addiction, despite sometimes serious mental illness, um, uh, the people who were suffering from this were active participants in the community. If they were able to work, people kind of provided uh, small jobs for them, or the, the city government provided kind of street sweeping jobs for them. Um, if they were unable to work, the families and communities really rallied around them. Um, and the, the, the social institutions really provided a buffer that cared for people in a human way, um, not a bureaucratic way. And I think the result is that even the people who, um, in the United States, in a city like Seattle or New York or San Francisco, might end up on the streets, might end up, you know, kind of deranged or violent or having um, kind of traumatic uh, breakdowns in the streets. And this is something I see every day uh, as I ride the bus downtown in Seattle. In Italy, it's much softer. And the people are, are really kind of held in the arms of the community. And I think that um, obviously if you have mental illness, these people are also being you know, medicated by psychiatrists. But I think that those social things make a huge difference. And that's the reason why you would never see someone on the streets in our village. Uh, you would never see someone really lashing out with kind of dangerous behavior. And this kind of cultural cohesion really limits the expression of pathological behavior in a way that I think we need to start addressing in the United States. We need to figure out how we can uh, not only provide kind of bureaucratic support, institutional support, but provide those kind of cultural boundary lines um, that can be extremely powerful um, in reducing some of the worst effects of uh, addiction and mental illness and uh, homelessness that we see in so many cities. It's very interesting, Chris. Uh, time for one more question. This is just a future-oriented one. Uh, why don't you tell readers what your next big essay is going to be about? Yeah, my next big essay, I'm going to be traveling down to Los Angeles next month to do uh, an expose on the addiction crisis. Uh, one thing I've learned is that um, there are at least 100,000 uh, homeless uh, opioid addicts throughout the West Coast, and we're really starting to, to get a better sense of the relationship between addiction, mental illness, homelessness, and crime. And I think that uh, Los Angeles, for my time there, for my study of what's happening, is provides really the perfect backdrop to go into the heart of the addiction crisis. And, um, and, and, and really the working thesis for this piece is that, um, is that my fear is that we're creating uh, what I think of as really a new class of untouchables. Um, and despite the rhetoric of compassion that comes from city leaders like the mayor of LA, um, the actual results of our social policies are that we're creating a a, a new class of disenfranchised people um, who we seem to be content uh, with just letting them kind of languish in the streets. Um, and although we've, you know, kind of revived people temporarily with naloxone um, uh, inhalants uh, so people don't die from overdoses, um, that's really where our compassion stops. And nobody has presented a good plan to try to get people off the streets, try to get people recovering from addictions, um, and really try to reintegrate this, this kind of forgotten class of people back into society. And I want to see if there's, um, I want to see both the extent of this, have we really given up on tens of thousands of people in Los Angeles County, um, and is there any way that we can reorient our policies to 
address kind of the, the heart of this crisis, uh, to look at addiction with clear eyes and open hearts, um, and then start to make a change that might actually um, prevent these folks from being condemned uh, to really living and dying on the streets. And um, I, I'm just uh, excited to go down there, excited to talk to people who are uh, working in this space um, and hope that I can unco uncover not only some analysis into the problem, but some hope for the future um, and that some sort of spark of optimism that we might be able to solve it. Well, we're looking forward to that essay uh, very much, as, uh, as will our readers. Um, don't forget to check out Christopher Rufo's work on the City Journal website, www.city-journal.org. We'll link to his author page in the description, and you can follow him on Twitter, at RealChrisRufo. You can also follow City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And always, if you like what you heard on the podcast, give us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and thanks, Chris, for joining us. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.